what we just sung about is Jesus, the great reformer who cleanses us inwardly for access to holy God. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you that indeed you do draw us to yourself in Christ. And because of that, in all of our struggle and difficulty, we can come before you in him. And so, Father, we uh, pray that you would grant us all that we need to attend to your word, that our hearts would be drawn to your word today, and that you would enable me to be a faithful preacher and declarer of your word, that you would enable us to be faithful hearers for Jesus' sake and for his glory. We pray these things. Amen. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9. We'll be reading verses 1 through 14. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We are heirs of the Protestant Reformation. To appreciate the radical nature of this reform that began even before the 1600s, we need to take a look at from what was the church reformed. 
the medieval Roman Catholic Church viewed salvation in terms of one being justified, that is, made right in order to stand before God, by belief in Jesus plus Jesus plus making that grace that had been infused at the sacrament of baptism grow by human effort in keeping the sacraments of the church, a works-based salvation. The reform that God sovereignly brought to the church centered on the biblical teaching of salvation in terms of one being justified solely on the merits of Christ's atoning death and his perfect and imputed righteousness alone received by the gift of faith. In other words, Jesus plus nothing else. The five solos of the Reformation help us understand the the radical nature of the change that took place that, by the way, we're still living in today as heirs of the Reformation. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Scriptures alone, and for the glory of God alone. Similarly, the author of Hebrews helps us appreciate the radical Reformation Indeed, the ultimate reformation brought by Christ by looking at what Christ reformed, thus making the old system obsolete, as we saw last week. Two points will guide us today, and they're simply this. The present age, with its system that cannot remove that barrier between God's people and God's holiness, and then secondly, the age of reformation brought by Christ that brings about inward cleansing, and because of that, a purified conscience, and because of that, free access to holy God through him. So first, the author details what reform has come, or uh, from what reform has come in this present age. In other words, what was it Christ reformed? We see this in verses 1 through 14. I want to talk about three things with respect to that old system that Christ made obsolete because he reformed it. First, the definition of present age. We see that term in verses 8 through 9. The author gives us this definition and, and during uh, a time of transition, it, we all know this as one thing is ending, another thing is beginning, and there's an overlap. It may be one minute, one day, or many years. That's the nature of transition. I wanted to think about the Old Testament, that Old Testament era that technically came to an end in A.D. 70 with the destruction of the temple. And the New Testament era that was inaugurated by Christ had already begun by 70 A.D. And so there was this period of overlap 
between the Old Testament coming to a close and the New Testament inaugurated with Christ appearing and then growing and fulfilling into the future. And so when the author of Hebrews speaks of the first section of what was the tabernacle that Bruce read about in Exodus 26 and is that holy place in the temple that stood in the day Hebrews was written, the author is referring to that section of the temple that was still standing, that was symbolic of that Old Testament age, that Old Testament Aaron verses 8 through 9. And he infers by this that indeed his letter was written before AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. It was still standing as the author wrote this letter. If the temple was still standing, the sacrificial system was still in effect. Thus, he was concerned with his flock, his congregation. As they were being pressured to forsake Christ, that indeed they might forsake Christ and submit themselves once again to what Christ had made obsolete because he reformed it. And indeed, it was coming to an end. We need to understand the text today in light of this overlap of the New Testament era ending and the, or the Old Testament era ending and the New Testament era beginning and growing to fulfillment. That is the present age. That is the definition. And now the second detail is this. In that Old Testament sacrificial system, in that tent of meeting, that tabernacle, that temple in the day of the author, there, there, there was, that represented an earthly place of God's holiness. Look at verses 1 through 5. And the temple in the first century is patterned after the tent of meeting that Bruce read out in Exodus chapter 26. The author of Hebrews describes this as an earthly place of holiness. The tabernacle then, the, the temple in the day, the author wrote this in the first century, represented God's holy presence amid his people. The first section of the tabernacle was the holy place. And our text, and certainly Exodus 26 and other places in Scripture, tells us that contained in that holy place, that first section, was a lampstand, was a table on which the bread of presence was placed, and then an altar of incense that was at the very back, right up against what we'll talk about in just a moment, of which Bruce read that, that second curtain. And that second curtain separated the holy place from the most holy place. And behind the most holy, or in the most holy place, behind that curtain, as Many of us are familiar with, because we've already talked about this throughout our study of Hebrews, is, was, was the Ark of the Covenant in which was the manna that God provided the ancient Israelites. A copy of the Ten Commandments and Aaron's staff. The Ark was covered by the mercy seat with the cherubim on either end. That was God's 
throne room in the midst of his people. That's what it symbolized. Now, the reason the author lists, if you read carefully, that the altar of incense he puts behind the veil in the most holy place, which it technically was not, was because of the close proximity the altar was to the most holy place and that it was somewhat symbolic of the most holy place. And as that incense was lit, surely that smoke would filter into the most holy place. So the, the author of Hebrews sees this as a close relationship, and that's why he put it there. But what we need to know is that technically the altar of incense was in the holy place, not the most holy place, though it was closely identified with it. And then thirdly, the deficiency of the sacrificial system. The details of the tabernacle and the sacrificial system show that there was a barrier between God's people coming into the presence of holy God. Verse 6 speaks of the tent of meeting being built according to the details. Obviously, the details like what we find in Exodus chapter 26. The author tells us that the priests regularly went into that first section, the holy place, to perform their ritual duties with the bread and pre bread of presence and the incense and the light from the, the lamp stand. In verse 7, we see that only the high priest once a year would go behind that second curtain, that curtain that we see prominent in passages like Exodus 26 into the very throne room of God and he would go with blood for his sin as well as for the sin of the people. And of course this is a reference to what we read in Leviticus 16 of the day of atonement. In verse 8 the author refers to the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit inspired him to write the letter to the Hebrews, and the Holy Spirit inspired him to write this very verse when he says, The way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing. There was not free access by the people into the presence of, of holy God as long as that first section, as long as that curtain remained a barrier. God's people would come to worship, but they worshiped at a distance. So here's the question. If the Israelites really wanted to get into that most holy place, all they would have to do is get a good and running start and run right through that curtain. Was that curtain, was that tapestry all that much of a barrier to being in God's presence? I believe what the writer of Hebrews is wanting us to see here is that that physical barrier, that curtain, pointed to 
the real barrier, which is this, the conscience. The conscience, the inward disposition of a person is indicated by the conscience. It functions like a barometer indicating or informing of something. And the conscience informs us of our inward state. It, in, it lets us know, you know, how are we doing with God? It, it indicates an inward sense of right and wrong or being just before God or guilty before holy God. The injured conscience indicates that the, the, the person is not doing well with God. It is weighed down with guilt, causing the person to experience despair and dread, overcoming into the presence of holy God. Why would one dread coming into the presence of a holy God? One feeling guilty before God surely would not want to put themselves in a position of suffering the outpouring of God's wrath upon them, his just wrath upon their guilt and upon their sin. Instead of peace with God, the guilty one feels a keen sense of being an enemy of God. Instead of coming boldly uh, to God, one holds his or her head in shame and slithers away and hides. The dynamic of the, the inward corruption being measured, if you will, by the conscience is clearly seen in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve sinned, sin came into the world, they became sinners and their consciences registered, they were guilty before God. And what did they do? Did they say, oh God, receive us into your presence. What did they do? They hid, or they tried to hide from holy God. That is a barrier. Our sin, sinful inward disposition being indicated by a guilty conscience. It is an insurmountable barrier to approach God, much more than a curtain. The author in verses 9 through 10 addresses the deficiency of the sacrificial system to remove this barrier. In verse 10, he states that the gifts and sacrifices offered, this is what he says, cannot perfect the conscience, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations of the body. In other words, the ceremonial law, though it had a place in God's economy, but in including the sacrificial system, were focused primarily on the externals and did not reach inward. And thus did not affect the conscience. The author emphasizes all the blood of all the animal sacrifices. A torrential flood of the blood of animals could not change the inward sinful disposition. And therefore could not touch the conscience. 
much less relief from guilt. The external right, to say it simply, cannot perfect and purify the inward. It can't remove the barrier of a guilty conscience. And so the writer of Hebrews is pleading with his flock, his congregation, to, to hold fast in Christ and not submit themselves again to this system Christ is reforming, has reformed, thus has made obsolete, that will end because it's incapable of dealing with the, with the true barrier to access to God. An inward sinful disposition indicated by a guilty conscience. Now let me just seek to apply this point. And here's the application. And I, I believe that I can speak for all of us here today. We know what it feels like to have a guilty conscience. We understand how shame moves us to hide from others and to try and hide from God. We, we have experience with the guilty conscience. We, we have experience with, with a sense that this is an insurmountable barrier to our communion with God that we we simply cannot fix. And we most likely would admit that all of our striving and trying to soothe that guilty conscience and trying to remove this barrier with our communion with God, even utilizing the good things of Christ, like Bible reading, like quiet times, like, like ministry itself, like trying our best to keep God's commands, to, to be good Christians. We give ourselves to prayer and to church attendance, thinking that somehow this will relieve that guilty conscience, and it doesn't even touch it. Though we need to do all of those things, we need to realize those things come from an inward work of Christ. Those things cannot do the inward work for us. The pastoral plea of this author to his flock is a pastoral plea to us. Don't abandon Christ. To embrace the, the barrier of a guilty conscience. Don't on the one hand profess faith in Christ boldly and loudly, but on the other hand live in functional unbelief because you really don't depend on Christ. You're depending on yourself to deal with your inward state and your guilty conscience. What the author is telling his flock and telling us today is that Christ has saved us 
from that which cannot remove the barrier. And he's done so by his reforming work, making the old obsolete. Second, the author encourages believers to hold fast to Christ, for he has brought the age of reformation that does indeed remove the barriers and opens access to God. We see this in 11, verses 11 through 14. Again, three, three parts to this. First, the time of reformation. Look at verse 11. The sacrificial system was designed to regulate the people's service to God and worship. Verse 10, until the time of reformation. So the Old Testament ceremonial law and sacrificial system had a purpose. It was to point us to Jesus, but it would become obsolete when Reformation came. And the time of this Reformation is specified in verse 11, when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come. The, the, the time of Christ's reforming work, we can take to span that incar his incarnation to his ascension to the right hand of the Father and every aspect of his active obedience, his living a righteous, perfect life, sinless life. That's his active obedience and his passive obedience, his atoning work on the cross. His reform is the time when he came to inaugurate the new covenant that we talked about last week. Second, the means of his reformation, verses 11 and, and 12. Last week's message focused on chapter 8, where the, where the author tells us there that Jesus is a better minister because he ministers in the true tent, the, the real most holy place in heaven, and not in that earthly tent, which is a copy and shadow of the heavenly reality. And secondly, because Christ not only ministers in that true and real place in heaven, but because he, he is the minister of a more excellent covenant, a better covenant. He's a more excellent mediator of a better covenant, one that is based on promise. And in today's text, he drills down on that just a little bit by, by speaking of Christ's ministry in entering the greater and more perfect tent, that to which the earthly copy and shadow pointed. And unlike the, the many sacrifices year after year that was part of the Levitical sacrificial system on the Day of Atonement, Christ entered once for all into the holy places, into the real presence of God. And he did so not with the blood of goats and calves, as was the case with the Levitical high priest. But the text tells us by means of his own blood. The means of reformation. Reformation came about because of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And thirdly, what resulted from this reformation? We see this in verses 13 and 14. The author contrasts the results of the sacrificial system 
to the reform of that system by Christ using a lesser to the greater argument. In the former, that is the Levitical sacrificial system, the result of the blood of animals and the ashes of a heifer being, being sprinkled upon an, an individual that was defiled was external cleansing. And the, the author speaks of it in terms of sanctification in the purification of the flesh. And then he says, if this lesser is true, those glorious words, how much more will Christ's perfect, unblemished sacrifice of himself offered through the eternal spirit result in inward cleansing, purification of the conscience from dead works, that is the sacrificial system, in order to serve the living God. And the, the reference to Christ offering up himself through the eternal spirit as well as Christ's sacrifice being unblemished highlights the efficacy of Christ's sacrifice to cleanse inwardly and ensure eternal redemption for every single one who has been chosen to be in the kingdom of God. The result of Christ's reformation is inward cleansing and freedom from a guilty conscience that would bar us from running to God. But because Christ has dealt with that, we have free access to God. The curtain has been torn in two. Only his blood removes the barrier to God's presence. Only his blood cleanses within. Only his blood purifies and perfects our conscience that we would go freely and boldly and humbly into God's presence. Yea, even running. That's how efficacious Christ's blood is to remove the barrier. Those outside a true and saving relationship with Christ have their consciences weighed down with an unbelievable weight of sin. They may know it. They may not know it. They may have an indication of it, but irrespective of their perception of their guilty conscience, they are weighed down with guilt. Those of us who have a saving relationship with Christ often lack communion with God because of the remaining inward corruption, unrepentant sin, 
that results in a guilty conscience. I don't know how many times I've heard a person tell me, a believer tell me, I just don't see how God can accept me into his presence. Well, that is exactly what most of us have probably felt, at least at some degree. That, that barrier that our sin causes, that, that barrier that a guilty conscience can bring, even to a believer, to have that beautiful communion with holy God. Let me just say that if you or I have a sense that we lack communion with God, it should be an indication of a guilty conscience that points to inward corruption, sin, something going on spiritually inside. And that indicator is saying, pay attention. Your lack of communion is not lack of communion. Your lack of communion is because of there's a barrier. And it's root is sin. And it's indicated by the conscience. If we lack communion, we may try to relieve it by religious rituals, by spiritual disciplines, by being a good person, by trying to ignore <laughs> the guilty conscience. All of those external things, though, with the exception of ignoring a guilty conscience, those, those, those aspects of our relationship with Christ, those things that we should be doing, yet they will not relieve the guilty conscience. They will not deal with what is wrong inside. Where's the hope? Look at verse 14. How much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works. Those things, those, even those good things that we try to do. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God, to come into his presence and to serve him in worship. What the author is telling us and reminding us is our need to hold fast in Christ. And so I just want to encourage us with what might be the first step when you, when you have a guilty conscience and it's indicating something's wrong inside, you're trying to, what's the first step to deal with this? The first step is the step that King David took at the end of Psalm 139. That Psalm where David just celebrates just how much God knows him even before he was formed in his mother's womb. 
And the last two verses of that psalm, after David freaked out a little bit about his enemies, he, <laughs> God knows me this well, I trust him, but what are these? Yeah, you know, so it's just, it's just us. Psalm 139 ends with this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's the first step. When that inward sin begins to percolate up in a guilty conscience, and we try all kinds of things to relieve ourselves of it. This is the one thing that we need to do first and foremost. This is what it looks like to apply the gospel to yourself. It's to say, God, I know there's something wrong. My conscience is telling me so. I want to run and hide from you. But I can't figure it out. Help me. Lord. Help me see my sin. Help me see the reformation that Christ has wrought that removes that barrier of sin by his own blood. Seek him to reveal the guilt and shame, the sin. Humbly confess that sin. And receive his forgiveness and live in the reality of the result of Christ's reformation. And that is, be free. For Christ has removed the barrier for access to holy God. There is a hope in our great reformer only his blood will inwardly cleanse and remove the guilt and the sin and the barrier to our access, our free access to God. That barrier gone that we may flee, run into God's presence and enjoy him. May we ever trust Christ's cleansing blood. And may we pray, oh, for grace to trust him more. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for his reforming work where he came age of reformation the author speaks about to reform the old to make it obsolete to bring the new that is the way to have access to God the Father Lord grant us all the grace that we need to serve you in and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and Father, I pray for those here even today that might be burdened with a guilty conscience. Father, may, may this passage be an encouragement. May David's first step 
be taken. May you do a work of reformation in that person's life. And Father, in many respects, we could all pray that similarly. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.